I turn with me this morning to the book of Philippians. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 1. And I want to read together the first 12 verses. Philippians chapter 1. Found, of course, in the New Testament, one of Paul's letters to one of the churches under God, which he founded. Philippians chapter 1, we'll read from verse 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord, reading, of course, from the authorized version. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel Ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offence till the day of Christ being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Amen. We'll end our reading there at verse 12. And we pray God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own inerrant and infallible word. Now my text this morning is taken from Philippians chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. It reads as follows, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now my subject today is understanding the servants, the saints, and the Savior. And it's my intention to begin a, a series of messages on the letter of Paul the Apostle to the Philippian church. And to begin uh, this series of messages, I want us to consider this introductory greeting to the church. Now, from a casual reading of the letter, we know who wrote it. That's important. 
It was written under the dictation of the Apostle Paul. We know where it was written from. It was written from a prison cell in Rome. I want you to understand that the Apostle Paul is in bonds and chains in a Roman prison house. I want you to understand when it was written. It was written some 10 years after Paul's first visit to Philippi. And if you compare Acts 16, which I encourage you to read, you will learn that Paul was on his second missionary journey. And in his mind, his intention was to take the gospel to Asia, to travel to Bithynia, which is really northern Turkey. And according to Acts 16, verse 6, he was forbidden of the Holy Ghost to go there. Now, isn't that mysterious? Isn't that puzzling? Paul's motive was good. Paul was a preacher of the gospel. There was people in Asia, the Far East, Northern Turkey that needed to be saved, needed to hear the gospel, needed to be introduced to Christ. And yet, in God's sovereign will, Paul and his companions were not permitted to go there at that time. Why? We can't understand the mysteries of God. It's tied in to, to God's sovereign will. We have to accept that there are things that we just do not understand. But what is interesting, the Apostle Paul accepted the clear will of God. He accepted the leading of the Lord in his life at that time. Eventually, in his journey, he reached a place called Troas. And during a night, he, he saw a vision. A man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Now this man was used by God to show the Apostle Paul the Lord's will for his life. And the direction he should take at this time. So without delay, without any discussion with his companions, Paul crossed the Aegean Sea and arrived in the coast of Macedonia. And from the coast, he proceeded to the, the principal city of Macedonia, which was the city of Philippi. And there, wonderfully, the Lord moved and worked. In a short space of time, three precious souls were saved. Uh, a woman uh, by the name of Lydia, a seller of purple, she was saved at a river bank. Um, several days later, a demon-possessed girl who made her masters much money was delivered uh, from uh, demonology by the sovereign grace and power of God. Uh, and as a result of this second convert to Christ, uh, there was a riot. And what flowed from that riot was this, that, that Paul and his Silas were arrested. Uh, they, were, they were beaten. Uh, they were imprisoned. And while in prison, of course, a, a third convert uh, came uh, to the fore. An earthquake that night shook the Philippian jailhouse. The, the jailer himself was saved uh, along with his family. Now it was becoming clear. God had a work for Paul to do in Macedonia. There were souls to be saved. There was a, 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 a missionary work to engage in. An effectual door had been opened. And in the providence of God, a congregation of believers formed themselves into a, a congregation in the city of Philippi. And now some ten years have passed. And this letter was written to encourage them, to 
help them to enjoy the gospel, to educate and enlighten them as to the great truths of the gospel itself. The key word in the letter is joy. J-O-Y. Remember Paul's in prison. But he's not full of self-pity there. He's not worried about a circumstance or a situation. He's not even thinking of himself. No, he's thinking of God's people in Philippi. And his key message is them as this. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, here's the key text. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And, and that's his key message. Rejoice in the Lord, even in difficult days, even in hard circumstances. Don't focus on the great problems that you have. Focus on this great principle. The joy of the Lord is my strength. You see, Paul's a realist. Paul deals with the, the stuff of life. He, he deals with our fears. He deals with follies and failures in this life. He deals with our forgetfulness. He deals with our faults. And all of them should point us to Christ. Who is the greatest hope of the Christian? It's Christ. Where is the greatest happiness of the Christian found? It's found in Christ. Yes, the world is a sinful place. Yes, bad and mad things happen in our society. Yes, we, we live in perilous times even for the church and for the work of God. Yes, God's people have disappointments. Often bitter disappointments every day. God's people face struggles. We even think about marital difficulties. Financial worries, bodily sickness and illness. Now when you face them, what does the word of God say when you've got a problem? Get your eyes on Christ. Learn to rejoice in him. If you're in union with him, you can discover that in him, even in dark days and difficult times, there's a life of joy and a life of peace. We can learn to live joyfully, even despite our circumstances and situation. It was Warren Wearsby that wrote the little book in Philippians, and he entitled it, Be Joyful. And that's what this letter's all about. It's full of Christ and this principle to rejoice in the Lord. And to be joyful as a Christian despite your circumstances. I want you to notice three things this morning. Just from this introductory greeting. Notice the delineation of servanthood. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. Now we'll pause there. I want you to notice how the apostle introduces himself and Timothy. Timothy is Paul's co-worker at this time. They were laborers together. Uh, Timothy, of course, is a young man who was left by Paul to pastor the church at Ephesus. But it's interesting how he describes himself and his co-worker. How do they de describe themselves? How, how do they delineate themselves? Here's the answer. Servants 
of Jesus Christ. Now, now we're going to pause for a moment because that's very important. Servants of Jesus Christ, that, that's full of teaching. You see, to me it reveals something of the spiritual depth and calibre and character of the man of God. What does it reveal when we think about servants of Jesus Christ? When you take that thought into your mind, what's revealed to your mind? Surely there ought to be revealed a spirit of humility. These were the leading men in the church, Paul and Timotheus. Paul's an apostle. Paul's one of the leading theologians of the day. He's a church planter. He's been involved in planting this church in Philippi. He's a preacher of the gospel. These are the outstanding leaders of their day and generation. We could say, yes, that they're saved men. That they've been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice, these men are in subjection to Christ. The servants, the word servant there is the Greek word doulos, uh, which literally means a bond slave. We could read it that way, Paul and Timotheus, the bond slaves of Jesus Christ. You see, both these men recognised they were not their own. They recognised we're not the boss of our lives. We're not our own master. Isn't that the thought and sentiment of many today? I'm the boss. I can do what I like. I'm my own master and the, 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 the guardian of my own destiny. But Paul and Timotheus... Even though they're the, the leaders and outstanding men in the church, they lived in obedience to Christ. It was his will, his mind, that mattered. Christ was their king. I think it's interesting what he wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, whenever he said what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The Apostle Paul just didn't write that. But the Apostle Paul practiced what he preached. He not only was a saved man, but he lived in submission to Christ. He, he was surrendered to Christ. He lived to serve him. His motto was for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Philippians 1.21 This was a, a spirit of genuine humility and genuine dependability on the Lord. In other words, they didn't live unto themselves. They lived to Christ. He was the Lord of their lives. These men were not full of pride. They didn't live for self. They accepted a foreseen by the grace of God and bought with the price of the precious blood. Then we're not our own. And remember when Paul was converted on the Damascus road, his first thought was when he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He recognized instantaneously that he belonged to another, that he wanted to be like the master. If you turn over there to Philippians chapter 2 for a moment, and look with me at the verse 5. 
But let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Notice the words here in verse 8, he humbled himself. Christ not only humbled himself, but he took the form of a servant. Jesus Christ is the greatest servant of all. God's servant. He voluntarily gave himself up unto death, even the death of the cross. Paul knew that for saved by the grace of God and bought by the precious blood of Calvary's Lamb, then were his. And all that we have and all that we are is because of Christ. And therefore, we're to live unto him. It revealed a spirit of humility. It also revealed to me, at least, a spirit of dignity. If you think of the words, Christ Jesus. Uh, this is uh, one of the, the lovely titles for, for God's Son. <coughs> Who is Christ Jesus? He's the only begotten Son of God. He's revealed in the Bible as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's our creator and maker. For nothing was made without him. By him all things were made. He's the son of the living and true God. He's the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Surely, one of the greatest privileges and the greatest principle to adopt, and the greatest position and station to enjoy in life is to be the servant of Jesus Christ. Not, not, not the servant of the Queen of England. Not the servant of the presidency of the United States of America. Those would probably be honours indeed. But the greatest honour, a servant of Jesus Christ. I was speaking to a veterinary surgeon recently. He's going into hospital for a knee operation on Tuesday into Musgrave. And there was a young man there and he was having a chat to the young man. And he was asking them about his A-level results. And of course the young man had did very well. And he said to the young man, maybe you'll follow your dad into the work of the ministry. And of course immediately the young man said, well, I wouldn't rule it out. Maybe someday. And you know, when I heard that, I thought of this. Someone said, I don't know who it was. If God calls you to be a minister or a missionary, never stop or stoop to be a king on a throne. And how true that is. And Paul knew he was the servant of Christ. Not only did he belong to him, but he counted it as an honour and a privilege to live, to do his bidding, to deliver his honour, deliver his glory. That's something he never lost sight of. Not from the day he could see it. He could say, for me to live is what? He summed it up in one word. Christ. 
Also it reveals to me a spirit of ministry. What does a servant do? He does what the master tells him to do. He, he, he goes to where the master tells him to go. Remember Paul's in prison. He's probably chained to a, a Roman guard. He has the thought that he's going to face death soon. We, we could say, well, things are not looking good for you, Paul. But he's not wallowing in self-pity. He's not taken up with his own circumstances and situation. He's thinking of God's people. In fact, he says, if you look with me in verse 7, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. See, Paul has God's people on his heart and mind. He wants them to be encouraged even though he's in prison. No doubt they were in fear for him in prison, thinking this is dreadful, the, the leader's in prison. He wants them to enjoy the gospel. That's why he uses the word joy and rejoice repeatedly. This is not a drudgery. The Christian life is not something you dread. Oh, oh I become a Christian. How dreadful, how miserable for me. No, this is a delight. He wants them to enjoy God in the gospel. He doesn't want you to go about with a big face like a lurking spade and be down in the dumps and as if you're carrying uh, the, the uh, world on your shoulders. He also wants you to be enlightened. He, he wants you to be filled with an understanding of the, the great truths of the gospel and let them grip your heart and mind. You see, in prison, here's the point. He's saying, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And as a servant... I, I live to do my master's bidding and I have the church at Philippi on my heart and mind. I'm thinking of the people of God who are there. He has them in his heart daily. He has them in his heart continually. That bond has not been broken by a prison cell. His heart is knit with their hearts. They're on his heart and on his mind. He has a vision for them. He has a passion for them. Now, now let me ask this morning. How do we view ourselves if we profess to be saved? I've challenged my own heart with this thought. In the week that I was off, although I wasn't away. A staycation can be very difficult, you know, at home. But I was thinking about this. If we're saved, how do we view ourselves? How do I view myself? Surely that's a question that, that challenges every true believer. Surely that's really a question of priority. But what drives us? What motivates us? Well, what makes us tick? What are we living for? Are we living for the things of time and sense, living for this world, living to make money, living to have a reputation, living for self or pleasure? Or do we live with an eye to the Saviour and, and, and enjoy him as we live out our lives? Because God is first and foremost in our lives. Remember he was saved, the Damascus Road, and his first cry was, or second cry really, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What do you want me to do in my life? And the answer was, at least in part, be my servant. 
I have saved you now. Live in surrender and submission to me and to my will. There's the delineation of um, servanthood. Notice the, the description of sainthood here. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. I want you to think of this congregation in Philippi. And I want you to think of their calling to be saints. This has to reference at least the time when individuals in that city were were called by the gospel, brought to confess their sinnership, confess that they have a soul they need to be saved, confess their need of the Savior, confess their need of God's salvation. And as they receive Christ as Lord and Savior, they have really become, in a true sense, living saints. Now, they haven't been made saints uh, through a process of beatification or canonization. That's the Roman Catholic view of sainthood. Um, that, that's a complete misuse of the word. The, the, the word saints is the word hagios. And that's the name really given to all true believers. God's holy ones. God has separated them unto the gospel by the gospel. God has called them out from a life of sinnership into a life of communion and fellowship with him. God, by the blood of Calvary's lamb, has made them his own. They are the called ones. And, and to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, this is, has to do with the effectual call. They're, they're called by the Spirit of God, using the Word of God. And they've been brought into a union and communion with Jesus Christ. And these ones that are designated saints, declared to be saints, they're, they're living. They're living out real lives in real time. They're not perfect. They're, they're certainly not sinless. They're not without issues in the Christian life. But they are marked by this. They're marked by a desire and a striving after personal holiness. They have been called by God. They have been called by God in Christ. To a life of fellowship and service with Christ. Remember the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore if any man be in Christ he is a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new. Holiness has become the bent and the direction of their lives. Their motto ought to be uh, holiness unto the Lord. And of course sadly today this whole um, thought about sanctification and holiness is um, largely set apart in this age and generation in which we live. And yet the Bible tells us, listen to this in Hebrews 12 and 14, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. A holy life is an integral part of the salvation that God works in the process of sanctification. So I want you to think about their calling to be saints. I want you to think, secondly, of their, their courage to be saints. If you look at the Bible there, it says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi. 
Isn't that interesting? Philippi, that's that principal city in Macedonia. That, that principal city that's populated and garrisoned by many Roman soldiers. Do you know, I believe that Philippi was not an easy place to be. Neither a minister or a member of the church there. If you think of Acts 16, when that young girl, that demon-possessed girl, was delivered from demonology and glorious to convert it, there was a multitude against the preaching of the gospel. The men were beaten by the Roman soldiers. They were imprisoned on the authority of the Roman soldiers. You see, this was a place that had no love for the servants of God. No love for the gospel. No, no love for, for the ministers of Christ. No, 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 no love for a Christian that said he was living differently with, with a, a, a bent in a direction of holiness unto the Lord. And yet the wonderful thing is this, that God had planted a church in Philippi. There was a growing congregation even in that hostile environment among a people that had no love for Christ or for the gospel. And yet there was there in that very place those who were called and designated saints. Yes, they're living in a sinful world. But I want you to notice something. They hadn't forsaken the local church. There's a fellowship there among those people. A fellowship of saints. And these individuals remain true and steadfast and strong. They, they had courage as they banded together. Doesn't the Bible tell us Forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. So, so there's the courage of the saints. And another little thought that come to mind was the congregation of saints. If you look um, again at the text, it says, with the bishops and deacons. The bishops and deacons. Notice it's plural. This has to do with the form of church government. The word bishops, episkopos, is synonymous with the other Greek word presbyteros. They're used interchangeably in the Bible. Uh, so bishops is really a, a, a reference to the elders who are looking after the spiritual needs of that congregation. Within 10 years, there was a body of men known as the eldership there. Within 10 years, there was a body of men known as the deacons. And they were looking after the physical and temporal needs of the congregation. I just thought again. No Christian really lives for himself. You see, we, we have in today's mindset that you can be a Christian. You just worship at home. You don't need to go to a local church. You don't need to fellowship there. You can forsake the local church. Now, now I want to tell you, you can't. And of course, I'm, I'm not thinking about those who can't come because of illness. And I'm not thinking about those this morning who are on holiday or, or those who are caring for a loved one who, who's ill or caring for a child. But I want to press home this. You cannot be a Christian and neglect fellowship. Now, I'm not talking about communicant membership, per se. I'm just talking about generally. You cannot be a Christian and neglect fellowship at a local church. Because there's the benefits of belonging to a church fellowship. Remember in Acts chapter 2, the new converts there um, on the day of Pentecost. And what do we read about them in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42? We read uh, this tremendous statement. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' <laughs> doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in 
prayers. You see, we do the Lord a dishonor. We do the Lord a disservice if we're not in regular attendance at a local church because we need each other. Iron sharpens iron. So here's this declaration of sainthood. Their calling, their courage, and the congregation of saints. And notice one final thing. There's a declaration of saviorhood. If you look with me again at verse 1, you've got the title Jesus Christ. You've also got the title Christ Jesus. And then in verse 3, you've got the words from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in this declaration of saviorhood, because the name of the Lord Jesus is constantly mentioned throughout this first chapter, I let you count to see how many times there are mention of the Saviour in this first chapter. Just the first chapter alone. There's repeated references. I not tell you. You can count up. And then we'll compare notes the next time I preach on this subject. But I want you to notice in closing. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry said, and I, I quote, There can be no peace without grace. How many people today all over the world are looking for peace, peace of conscience from some action that they're guilty of? There's a call for world peace amidst all the wars that are happening. People are looking for peace in the midst of a family circle that has fallen out and at war over something that has happened, maybe the death of a loved one and a will. People are looking to be at peace with themselves. You hear of peace deals and treaties. And you know the sad thing is this, this whole thought about peace is marked by the absence of reference to the grace of God. And their search for peace doesn't include God or, or include Christ. And I want to say this morning that it's impossible to find peace without reference to Christ. Because it's grace first. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are the source of peace. And in fact, God supplies the peace through Christ. The Bible says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace stands first. For by grace he is saved through faith, not, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace is God's undeserved, unmerited favour to, to the ill-deserving, to the hell-deserving. So there's no peace apart from grace. I'll tell you something else in closing. There's no grace and peace except it comes from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to talk about the grace of God. We have to talk about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the peace of God. It always and only comes supplied through the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the mediator. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Christ is king. Christ, he said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. How does God channel any blessing to the church, to his people? 
to those that he, he designates his holy ones. And here's the answer. It is always and only through Christ. So you need to get your eyes in Christ. How can you survive in a godless place? How can you cope with problems and trials? How can you cope when the world falls apart? How can you cope when bad news comes to you or your family? When you, you experience disappointment? How could you rejoice in hard times? Think of the state of our United Kingdom. Think of the state of the church. The changes that have taken place in, in 20 years of seeing them and from the start of my ministry. How can we rejoice in the midst of an Islamic threat of terrorism? How can you rejoice when you see terrorists and men of blood being elevated to positions of power and authority when those who are denied justice are downtrodden? How can we cope? The answer is in union with Jesus Christ. Seeing afresh by faith the one who supplies all our need. Let our minds be drawn to Christ. Let, let's get our eyes on him. Let's focus on him. Let's fill our thought with the saviourhood that we have in Christ. And that's really this introductory greeting. It's all about being a servant. If you're saved, ask yourself, am I recognised that I'm a servant? If you're saved, do you accept that you're a saint? You've been called to be a saint. And God will give you courage to live for him. But you must belong to a local congregation. You must at least be in fellowship there. And let's fill our minds with, with the Saviour. Everything that we need. Grace and peace. The ability to cope. The ability to, to suffer. It all comes through him. I close with this thought. Great peace have they that love thy law. And nothing shall offend them. In other words, they'll not be disturbed because they'll be filled with the Lord's peace. May the Lord bless you today.